Uh, so we're going to spend um, a relatively short amount of time looking at this famous story, uh, the Good Samaritan, a famous story about loving your neighbor. But uh, we need to understand the context, don't we? Uh, Jesus tells this story in response to an expert in the law who we're told was trying to test him or, or trap him. In other words, this expert in the law is coming, asking a question, but he has impure motives. He doesn't really want to know the answer. He's trying to trap Jesus. He asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And I think what he's really asking is, does Jesus think that obedience to the law matters? He suspects that Jesus is unconcerned about the law of God, unconcerned about obedience to the law. This man probably believes that in order to have eternal life, you have to obey the law. It's called moralism or works righteousness. It's the view that if you obey the law, then you'll be accepted by God. If you do enough good works, then you'll have eternal life. Jesus' response is brilliant. Simple, but brilliant, because it exposes the weakness and hypocrisy of the man's position. Jesus asks him simply uh, what he thinks the law demands. Effectively, he's saying, okay, if obeying the law is how you get eternal life, let's assume that's true for a moment, what does the law actually require? How would you answer your own question? What do you need to do to inherit eternal life? And the man gives a fairly common summary of the law. Uh, The Mosaic law had hundreds of individual laws, but they were summarized in the Ten Commandments. And those Ten Commandments could be summarized in two. Love the Lord your God with everything you've got. Love your neighbor as yourself. The man's quoting from Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19. And Jesus agrees with the man's summary. He says, yep, that's a fair summary of what the law demands. And then he asks, and then he says, "Um, do this and you will live. In other words, if that is what the law demands, and eternal life requires obedience to the law, well, how are you going? How are you actually doing at keeping that law? Are you loving God with all your heart and with all your soul? Are you loving your neighbor as much as you love yourself? Really? Is that what you're claiming? Jesus is trying to get the man to humble himself and uh, realize that he can't keep this law so that he will seek God's grace. And what the man should have said at this point is, now I see. I I can't keep God's law. The standard is impossibly high. How then can anyone inherit eternal life when we've all fallen short? That's what he should have said, but he doesn't. doesn't do that. He doesn't want Jesus to save him, to justify him. He's committed to trying to justify himself. And so he does what anyone operating in a works-based religion does. He tries to lower the standards so that he can achieve them. Who then is my neighbor, he asks. In other words, how many people do I need to love? Because if I can limit that circle enough, then maybe I can do it. 
In response, Jesus tells the famous story about a man who travels from Jerusalem to Jericho, a a notoriously dangerous road. It was like Jesus saying, a man walked down a dark alley at night. All his readers would have been going, "Uh uh-oh, expecting trouble. And that's exactly what we get. The man is attacked by robbers who strip him of his clothes, beat him and leave him half dead. Now, I've read this story a number of times. I've never really kind of taken in that final phrase. The man was half dead, seriously injured, really vulnerable, utterly helpless. But things seem to look up. A priest, then a Levite come along the road. Surely they'll help, we think, but no. They both pass by on the other side. We're not told why. Uh, It certainly would have exposed them to the risk of attack themselves. Uh, It may have been that the man was so injured, they actually assumed he was already fully dead. And so, well, what good could they do for a dead man? And if they were dealing with a dead body, well, that's going to make them ceremonially unclean. Or maybe they just saw this man and how needy he was and thought, I don't have the time. I don't have the capacity to care for this person. I'm already overcommitted. I'll be late home. I'd like to help, but... Then a Samaritan enters the story, and I don't know about you, most of our knowledge of Samaritans comes from this story, doesn't it? So we think Samaritans are good, you know, the good Samaritan. They must be good people. But Jesus' hearers would have had a very different association. Uh, In the previous chapter, in fact, uh, chapter 9, right at the end, or 51 to 56, there's, there's this story where James and John ask Jesus if he wants them to call down fire from heaven on a Samaritan village that's refusing to welcome Jesus. That's who Samaritans were, sworn enemies of the Jews, seen as half-breeds and religious heretics. If we were writing a modern version of the story, it wouldn't be too far off to say, then an Islamic extremist came along the road. But what does this Samaritan, this enemy, do? Verse 33 As he traveled, he came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Look after him, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. The Samaritan loved this Jewish man in a really practical way and in a really costly way, didn't he? He met the man's needs, he risked danger himself, and he gave really generously of his time and his money. Jesus is giving a radical answer to the question, what does it mean to love your neighbor? But it's radical not only in what it says about how we are to love, but also in what it says about who we are to love. Uh, Tim Keller says about this passage, we instinctively limit ourselves in who we love. We love people who are like us and people who we like. But Jesus will have none of it. 
By depicting a Samaritan helping a Jew, Jesus could not have found a more forceful way to say that anyone at all in need, regardless of race, politics, class, and religion, is your neighbor. Not everyone is your brother or sister in the faith, but everyone is your neighbor, and you must love your neighbor. But there's a twist in the story. Um, I've noticed that over the years, but I think only this week in preparing, uh, realized its significance. Think about the placement of the Jewish man in the story. We might have expected the Jewish man to be the one providing help and the Samaritan to be the one in need. That at least in my thinking, would more obviously answer the question, who's my neighbor? Who do I need to love? Well, even Samaritans, even your enemies, love them. But Jesus puts the Jewish man in the role of the helpless one, the one needing love and care and rescue. In other words, I think he's asking his listeners and us to imagine ourselves as that dying man on the roadside with no hope unless the Samaritan, his enemy, stops and rescues him. Again, Tim Keller is helpful. Jesus was saying something like this. What if your only hope was to get ministry from someone who not only did not owe you any help, but who actually owed you the opposite? What if your only hope was to get free grace from someone who had every justification based on your relationship to him to trample you? You see, according to the Bible, we are like that man dying in the road, powerless to save ourselves, spiritually dead in our trespasses and sins, enemies to God. But when Jesus came into our dangerous world, he took pity on us. He was moved with compassion for us. He came to us and he rescued us, not only at risk to his life, but at the cost of his life. In extravagant generosity and grace, he met the requirements and paid the debt for our wounds to be healed and for us to be restored to life. Jesus is the great Samaritan that the good Samaritan points to. God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The story ends with a command. Go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. Not in an attempt to save yourself. We can never earn eternal life through our love. The standard's too high. We can't save ourselves. But when you grasp the fact that you have been saved, you have been loved by someone who owes you nothing, yet loved you out of sheer grace and at such cost, well, then you'll go out into the world looking to help absolutely anyone in need. This story 
challenges us in how we think about ourselves and then challenges us in how we look on others. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for uh, this story. Thank you for this teaching. Thank you for how it uh, responds and answers the, the question of, of the works-based person, the works-based religion, of what we can do to, to earn, to inherit eternal life. And we see in this story that the standard is impossibly high. We thank you that our salvation is not something we can achieve ourselves, but something we receive from you and from your grace. Thank you for how this story helps us to see that, that we are like that man lying on the roadside, wounded, half dead, powerless to save ourselves, and yet you came, and in great mercy, and at great cost to yourself, saved us. Help us, we pray, to, to grasp uh, that reality more deeply, to grasp the, the gospel more deeply, uh, that we'd see ourselves rightly, and so we'd see all those around us, regardless of race or class or religion. We'd see everyone around us as our neighbor, and we'd be moved and motivated, compelled, uh, to love, to love in costly, practical, God-honoring ways. Amen.